My name is Erin Lasley. I've traveled many different roads in my life. I've been a law enforcement officer and first responder in the United States Coast Guard. I've worked in a couple of psychiatric hospitals, but now I'm a professional historian and podcaster. I've also had an interest in true crime for most of my life. In this podcast, I study some of the most notorious crimes through the lens of a historian and analyze what may have inspired criminals, investigators, and even society during the commission of those crimes and investigations. Join me as we look into the history behind the crime. Hey y'all, how's it going? Welcome to another episode of the history behind the crime. Did everyone survive the holidays? I did, but just, you know, barely. Uh, I was cornered the other day at work and asked if I made any New Year's resolutions. Short answer, no. I I never do. Uh, no New Year, new me stuff. I, I don't do it. The only promises I have ever made is to be the same cantankerous hag that I was last year. And that's a promise I always feel confident that I can keep. But if you have made New Year's resolutions, I hope you guys are just killing that and you're doing good. You have my full support, you know, in whatever you do. And I, I just hope that while you are enjoying or not enjoying those New Year's resolutions, that you're prepared to listen to a history true crime podcast that this time has really nothing to do with history. And on that rambling note, let's get to it. I think I've mentioned this before, but I have this like bedtime routine for old people. Around eight, yeah, eight o'clock, I'll climb into bed and put on a podcast or audiobook and play my little coloring game. It gives me a chance to relax and enjoy some true crime, which you never think go hand in hand together, but thousands of women do it all the time. A few months ago, I listened to Philip Carlo's book, The Night Stalker. And while Carlo wrote a lot about Richard Ramirez's crimes, he also wrote a lot about the trial. He especially spent some time writing about women who showed up at Ramirez's trial and at the jail, hoping to meet with Ramirez. These women were groupies and were beyond fascinated by Ramirez. Quite simply, because he was a serial killer. I know, gag. I listened in horror as these women flooded into the courtroom and swooned over Ramirez as his victims and the families of his victims sat just a few feet away. I mean, did these women feel no shame? Ramirez slaughtered innocent men and women and raped children. Yet these women were enraptured by him. I mean, I know that some of us are oblivious to red flags, but sweet baby Jesus, talk about some major daddy issues. The whole thing got me thinking. Why and even how these women could be so powerfully attracted to a man who was a vicious, unremorseful killer. 
that's why I decided to take my psychology degree out for a spin and see what I could do with it. I know we normally explore history and criminology, but this time I thought we would deviate a little bit and explore psychology and, and criminology and talk about paraphilias. Yay, paraphilias! Probably one of the most strangest things I have ever studied in psychology. Strange, yet fascinating. Paraphilias are persistent and recurrent sexual interests, urges, fantasies, or behaviors of marked intensity involving objects, activities, and even situations that are atypical in nature. Although not innately pathological, a paraphilic disorder can evolve if paraphilia invokes harm, distress, or functional impairment on the lives of the affected individual or others. A total of eight paraphilias are listed in the DSM-5 and include pedophilia, exhibitionism, voyeurism, sexual sadism, sexual masochism, freuderism, fetishism, and transvestic fetishism. That was all the clinical mumbo jumbo. In layman's terms, paraphilias are sexual interests of things that most people aren't interested in. Though most paraphilias are harmless, they can really mess people up if they become obsessive disorders. Like, you can't lead a so-called normal life because these paraphilias play a major part of a person's everyday life. We all have kinks, and some of us have fetishes. And that's, guys, that's fine. Kinks are non-traditional sexual behaviors that people sometimes use to spice up their sex lives. But they can take it or leave it, depending on their partner or the mood or whatever. Kind of like, you know, employing handcuffs or adult movies every now and again. Fetishes are you know, non-traditional sexual interests or kinks that can obviously be very personal to an individual and are possibly a necessary element of sexual arousal or sexual activity. Kind of like someone who gets very turned on by feet. Kinks and fetishes are just fine amongst consenting adults. It's cool, you know, you, you do you. Paraphilias, on the other hand, are fetishes that have escalated to the point they have negative consequences on a person's life if they actually enact on their fantasies. Think of it like, like alcohol. People with kinks are casual drinkers. People with fetishes are heavy drinkers. And people with paraphilias are alcoholics. While being a casual or heavy drinker may not have a drastic impact on your everyday life, being an alcoholic would have some serious consequences. Paraphilias, like alcoholism, is a disorder. For instance, in the DSM, which is the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, says that for a kink or fetish to qualify as a paraphilic disorder, the arousal pattern or behavior must create significant distress or impairment in social, occupational, or other important areas of functioning. 
And by the way, all that information came from Dr. Robert Weiss in his article on Psych Central. As to how paraphilic disorders develop, well, that's not really clear. Many psychologists believe paraphilias develop early in life when a child observes inappropriate sexual behavior or is a victim of abuse. Some behaviorists believe that paraphilias begin through a process of conditioning when non-sexual objects become sexually arousing if they are repeatedly associated with pleasurable sexual activity. As a young boy, serial killer Dennis Rader observed a chicken tied to a stump with a rope before it was slaughtered. Though obviously, obviously not a sexual act, something within young Raider's mind connected ropes with sexual pleasure, and he would spend his life elaborately tying up himself and his victims. Raider's other paraphilias included voyeurism, autoerotic asphyxiation, and cross-dressing all developed when he was young. These evidently had a negative impact on his and other people's lives. Raider is an extreme example of the destructive behaviors paraphilias can cause. Most people who have paraphilias do not go out and harm or kill people. Some seek therapy or find ways to keep their paraphilias from severely impacting their lives. While it's true that most people with paraphilias are men, some are women. There's not a lot of data out there that explains why men are more prone to paraphilias than women. But what I have found shows that while more men are drawn to sadism paraphilias, women are more interested in masochism. Once again, not a lot of data on why. I theorize this may be the case because women may be more empathetic and are not aroused by inflicting pain onto others. Of course, that could be total bullshit too. After all, I'm not a behaviorist. What I do know is that some of these studies are controversial because most were conducted by men intended to lump women into paraphilic categories where the woman is the object. Within these studies of female sexuality, when women are discussed, it is mainly in terms that their paraphilic activities are at the behest of men with paraphilic disorders, sadomasochism, rape fantasies, and women who fall in love with serial killers. Now that we got the general breakdown of paraphilias out of the way, let's specifically talk about one, hybristophilia, deriving from the Greek hybrid zine, meaning to perpetuate an outrage against another and has been defined as the phenomenon of an individual being sexually aroused by a criminal offender. It's also known as the Bonnie and Clyde syndrome. Many psychologists describe hybristophilia as falling beneath the umbrella of predatorial paraphilias because the object of the person's desires has committed heinous crimes, including rape and murder. Hybristophilia, within the working definition, does not necessarily meet a standard to be considered criminal behavior on the part of the individual experiencing the paraphilia. 
but by its very nature, it does require criminal behavior on the part of the attractive individual to the individual experiencing hybristophilia. Did everybody get that? I mean, is everybody cool with it? Okay. Despite the flashy name of the Bonnie and Clyde syndrome, it's actually a misnomer. Women with hybristophilia are not always criminals themselves. They're just sexually attracted to criminals. Vice versa. Women who commit crimes with a romantic male partner don't always suffer from hybristophilia. Sometimes they're just criminals. And yes, there are men who have hybristophilia too. Men who are attracted to either female or other male criminals. For the purposes of this podcast, we'll predominantly going to concentrate on women who have the hots for the scum of the earth. The interesting thing about women with hybristophilia is that they cannot necessarily be lumped into the category of my daddy never loved me. While some women with this paraphilia suffered from childhood abuse, low self-esteem, isolation, or a number of other factors that just make you feel like shit. There are other women with this paraphilia that just, they just have it. Seemingly mentally healthy women who really, really, really love bad boys. While the phenomenon of women seeking the attention of violent criminals may seem weird, it's actually more common than you might think. According to Dr. Philippe Benesman, a criminologist at the University of Montreal, upwards of 4% of Canadian prison and jail employees show signs of hybristophilia. And if it's 4% in Canada, where the population of incarcerated people and prison employees is much lower, I can only imagine the percentage of prison workers with hybristophilia is here in the United States. And to be honest, I don't think I really want to know. In my research, I found out that there are two kinds of hybristophilia, passive and aggressive. Passive sufferers is exactly what it sounds like. Passive sufferers have no desire to take part in criminal activity, yet are attracted to men behind bars and normally just write letters to them or visit them in prison. They are known as S. KGs, serial killer groupies. Blech. These women are usually delusional and will try to find excuses for what the criminal did. They will develop relationships with the criminal and feel that they are special. That even though their lover may have killed numerous people, he would never harm her. They usually feel that they can change their lover and have rescue fantasies. Passive hybristophiliacs tend to put themselves in positions to be seduced, manipulated, and lied to by the people they fall for. The perfect mate for a psychopath. Aggressive hybristophiliacs are very much the opposite. They want a piece of the action. They are willing to help out their lovers with their criminal agenda by luring victims, hiding bodies, covering crimes, or even committing crimes. They are attracted to their lovers because of their violent actions and want to receive love 
yet are unable to understand that their lovers are psychopaths who are manipulating them. Also, the perfect mate for a psychopath. I'll give examples of both of those types later on. And if you're sitting there freaking out because at one time or another, you saw a criminal mugshot and thought, wow, he, he's kind of hot. You're not alone. And that's perfectly normal. You probably thought he's hot, but your attraction turned to revulsion once you heard about his crimes. That's not hybristophilia. Now, if you got turned on when you found out that hottie in the mugshot was charged or convicted for murder or rape or both, I would encourage you to take tomorrow off of work and find a good therapist. Actually, just go ahead and pause this and do a Google search for a therapist who takes your insurance. So everyone, raise your hand if you think you have a good grasp of what hybristophilia is and isn't. And because I can't actually see any of you, I'm going to assume you all have your hands in the air and we can move on to the meat and potatoes of this episode. As we've been talking about hybristophilia, one of the first monsters that may have sprung to your mind is Charlie Manson. But we're not going to talk about, you know, the Manson family. Those women and men were not necessarily sufferers of hybristophilia, but more likely they were the victims of brainwashing. The Manson family, after all, was a cult. After Manson was put behind bars for good, that's when his fan base swelled to epic proportions. From the beginning of Manson's notoriety, pulp culture created a buzz around him in which he instantly became a symbol for insanity and violence. Large media outlets like NBC and CBS booked interviews and produced documentaries with Manson, while other publications such as the Rolling Stones wrote memoirs about his life. This ultimately built a fantasy around Manson, which led to a loyal fan base and lots of women sending their panties to him. As Manson served out life in prison, he received hundreds and hundreds of letters and occasionally wrote back. And he acquired a pen pal who he almost married. In 2013, 25-year-old Afton Elaine Burton, also known as Star, told Rolling Stone magazine that she and Manson were going to get married. She had moved to California to be near Manson in 2007 and would regularly visit him for hours. I don't care what those kind of people think. It doesn't make any difference, Burton said to a news agency. The man that I know is not what they have in the movies or in documentaries and in the books. He's nothing like that. He doesn't tell people what to do. He's not manipulative at all. Burton, who ran a number of pro-Manson websites, reportedly believed in his innocence, which just, I mean, that just screams of hybristophilia. While they did file for a marriage license, they never actually tied the knot. Manson died in 2017. At the time of his death, 
Fans created a GoFundMe page to ensure that Manson was laid to rest with respect and dignity they thought he deserved. He was cremated and his remains were scattered off some hillside in California because nobody really gives a shit. No tombstone shrine for Charlie. Earlier, I mentioned the groupies that flocked to Richard Ramirez's trial because they thought he was dreamy. Clearly, they had never been around him before he got his teeth fixed and took a shower. When Ramirez, aka the Night Stalker, was arrested in August 1985, the man was fugly. I'm talking rotting teeth, bad skin, and a smell some surviving victims described as rancid. After a few months' stay in jail and a few trips to the dentist at the expense of California taxpayers, Ramirez was ready for trial and for his groupies. Each day during the trial, scores of women jockeyed for position, hoping to get a seat in the courtroom and to catch the infamous killer's attention. Author and criminologist Dr. Scott Bond suggested so many women flocked to the vicious serial killer because of his dark, mysterious way he represented himself with his sunglasses, dark clothes, long hair, and the pentagram he drew on his hand. Ramirez played up his bad boy image by acting defiantly against the judge, prosecutors, and even his own defense attorneys. He put on a show for his admirers and even managed to enrapture one of the female jurors, though she eventually did vote him guilty and then voted for the death penalty as well. Some of these women thought Ramirez was innocent and misunderstood. Some thought they could save him. Others were entranced that Ramirez killed in the name of Satan. These women not only attended the trial, but waited for hours to visit the killer in jail and get one-on-one -on -one time with him. Depending on how you look at it, one prevailed over all the rest of his groupies. Doreen, and I'm going to assume her last name is pronounced Loy, was a freelance writer for teen magazines when she started to write to Ramirez shortly after his arrest. Loy competed with Ramirez's 15 other so-called girlfriends and visited him four times a week in jail. She was so convinced of Ramirez's innocence that she actually married the death row inmate in 1996, much to the chagrin of her family who quickly disowned her. In 1997, she gave an interview to CNN and told the network how funny and charming Ramirez was. But in 2009, she left Ramirez when DNA evidence connected him to the rape of a nine-year-old girl. Loy fell off the map and gave no statement when Ramirez died in 2013. It should be noted that at the time of his death, Ramirez was engaged to a 23-year-old woman. Philip Carlos' book, The Night Stalker, goes more into depth about these women who became obsessed with Ramirez. Carlo wrote extensively, not only about Ramirez's crimes, but as I said before, he also did a pretty good job writing about the trial. He did an even better job writing tastefully and respectfully about Ramirez's victims. 
one of the things that also um, kind of shocked me, not shocked me, because I don't want to say shocked, but interested me during my research was that serial killers who preyed on men also attracted female groupies. John Wayne Gacy, who killed at least 33 men and boys, and who was also gay, received hundreds of letters from admiring men and women while he was on death row in Illinois. While, you know, mainly we only hear about Gacy's male admirers and those who desperately wanted one of his infamous clown paintings, Gacy's fan club included dozens of women who either wanted to save him or marry him. Then there was Jeffrey Dahmer, who was also gay and who also attracted his fair share of female admirers. At his very short trial, women lined up to see the cannibal and the chance to get his autograph. Two teenage girls even admitted they drove hours to see the serial killer of young men and boys just to get a peek at him. They acted as if they were swooning over a movie star. While in prison, women sent Dahmer letters, money, and gifts before he got, you know, beaten to death by another inmate in 1994. Even after his death, fans still sent him letters. I, I don't know. Just, just go with it, okay? Netflix's show Dahmer, Monster, the Jeffrey Dahmer story, gave new life to Dahmer groupies and even managed to attract a new generation of groupies as well. These people took to TikTok and Twitter, or whatever it's called now, and posted how they thought Dahmer was so hot. Never mind that he killed at least 17 men and boys, and ate some of them. His mugshot was just so dreamy. Of course, it was the actor Evan Peters they really fell in love with, not Jeffrey Dahmer himself. While a majority of women who fall in love with serial killers are mostly law-abiding citizens and passive hybristophiliacs, some take their devotion too far and offend against others, aggressive hybristophiliacs. In 1979, Bellingham, Washington police arrested Kenneth Bianchi for the rape and murder of two women. In a shocking twist, Police linked him to a series of murders in Los Angeles committed by him and his cousin, Angelo Bono. You know them as the Hillside Stranglers. In a previous episode, we talked about Bianchi's outrageous stunt to shirk responsibility for the murders by trying to convince everyone he suffered from dissociative identity disorder, also known as multiple personality disorder. Of course, the ploy failed when investigators and a wise psychologist figured out Bianchi based his little act on a book and a popular movie. Like all psychopaths, Bianchi thought he was a genius and smarter than everyone else. But in reality, he was an idiot. Fast forward to 1980, after Bianchi pled guilty to the Washington and California murders. Veronica Compton began to write letters to Bianchi because she wanted to interview him as research for her script about female serial killers. 
obviously our first red flag right there. At least in hindsight it is. The two continued to correspond for a few months, and Compton even visited Bianchi at least once before they developed another harebrained scheme to get Bianchi out of prison. Compton would go out and strangle a woman in the same manner Bianchi and Bono killed their victims. They thought if the murder started again, the courts would think Bianchi was innocent. But if you're thinking... Wait, the hillside strangler victims were also raped. Compton and Bianchi thought of that too, unfortunately. Compton acquired a vial of some random man's semen she planned to leave in her victim and traveled to Bellingham to go hunting. Compton met 26-year-old Kim Breed at a bar in Bellingham and lured her back to a motel room. Once then, Compton tried to strangle Breed with a ligature and just about killed the woman. Breed survived the attack and went straight to the police, and Compton was arrested for the attack and sentenced to life in prison with the possibility of parole. Compton would later say Bianchi twisted her love for him and manipulated her into committing the attack, you think? But manipulated or not, she still knew it was wrong, and there was plenty of evidence of premeditation. But there's another twist. While in prison, Compton developed her own little following of groupies, too. One of her followers was Doug Clark, who murdered and decapitated women and girls in L.A. with his girlfriend Carol Bundy, no relation to Ted. You know them better as the Sunset Strip Killers. Another groupie was Eastern Washington University political science professor James Wallace, who was almost 30 years older than Compton. The two started their correspondence in 1987 and married two years later after Wallace divorced his wife of 38 years. Wallace adopted Compton's son she had as a teenager, and later on, Compton and Wallace had a daughter together. Compton was paroled in 2003 and has managed to keep a low profile since. And then there is Ted Bundy. As soon as Bundy's face was splashed all over the news after his arrest in Florida in 1978, some women became immediately obsessed and sent the serial killer hundreds of love letters, marriage proposals, and even nude photographs of themselves. Many of these women just couldn't believe someone as good-looking and charming as Bundy could be responsible for such heinous killings. To them, he didn't look like a killer. Because, I guess to them, killers had, I don't know, bad B.O. and rotting teeth and bad skin. Like Ramirez, who still managed to attract groupies. During Bundy's trials, his groupies congregated in the courtroom, actually dressed like his victims. They dyed their hair brown, parted it down the middle, and wore hoop earrings because they read most of Bundy's victims looked like that. I can't even imagine what these women were thinking. 
But I guess, you know, they weren't thinking. Not only was this act insulting and hurtful to the victim's families, but it's akin to lathering yourself with blood, hanging a few ribeyes around your neck, and venturing out into the Serengeti where, you know, there's lions. These women were actively trying to attract a serial killer. I, I guess they thought it was safe because he was behind bars. But it was Carol and Boone who stood out amongst the crowd. Boone had worked briefly with Bundy back in Washington and continued her relationship with him even when he was sent to prison in Colorado. It was Boone who smuggled money to Bundy, which enabled him to escape from Colorado to Florida, where he continued to kill. After Bundy's arrest for killing two sorority students and a 12-year-old girl, Boone moved to Florida to support Bundy. When asked if she believed that Bundy was a killer or not, she said the murder charges were trumped up. Let me put it this way. I don't think that Ted belongs in jail, she said to a news reporter. The things in Florida don't concern me any more than things out west do. She later said, I've never seen anything in Ted that indicates any destructiveness towards any other people. Yeah, honey, because killers always kill their victims in front of other people, right? While in prison, Boone would smuggle narcotics in and even have intercourse with Bundy while the guards turned their backs. On February 9th, 1980, Bundy, acting as his own lawyer, narcissistic bastard, called Boone to the stand and used a little-known law to marry Boone while she was giving testimony. Two years later, in 1982, while Bundy was on death row, Bundy and Boone had a daughter, despite the fact that death row inmates were not allowed conjugal visits. But Boone and Bundy didn't stay together forever. Three years before Bundy's 1989 ride in Florida's electric chair, Boone divorced Bundy and moved her daughter and her son from a previous relationship out of state. Not much is said of why she divorced the infamous serial killer, but Boone disappeared from the public eye and did not reappear until it was announced she died in a Washington nursing home in 2018 at the age of 70. Serial killers are not the only ones who gained the attention of admiring women. Terrorists such as Ted Kaczynski, Timothy McVeigh, and Dokor Zanayev amassed their own female followers, and mass shooters regularly receive fan mail from adoring fans. There's even romantic fan fiction about school shooters who died during their attacks. Chances are, if a killer made the news, they received fan mail from women. Today, women can seek out and correspond with prison inmates online. There are a few dating apps out there that specifically cater to prison inmates searching for a mate. And these apps have hundreds of thousands of followers on TikTok. The crimes that put these men in prison range from nonviolent drug offenses to kidnapping, domestic assault, battery, multiple counts of rape, and murder. Basically, red flag central. While we spoke at length earlier about hybristophilia, 
there are several reasons why women seek out to attach themselves to dangerous predators, including the ever popular desire for a bad boy, attraction to deviants, the need to change or save a man from himself, fame, seeking a safe and controllable relationship because the man is in prison, mental instability, the attraction of male aggression, attention seeking, the potential for financial gain by selling their story or the killer's memorabilia, or just the fascination with darkness that surrounds these monsters. Whatever the reason, if one day you look at a serial killer and wonder what it would be like to enter into a romantic relationship with them, I strongly suggest you seek help. Because keep this in mind, the wives of Gary Ridgway, Dennis Rader, and Rex Howerman, the Gilgo Beach serial killer, all filed for divorce shortly after their husband's arrests or convictions. These were all good women who built lives and families with these men, and even they didn't know what their husbands were capable of. No woman can change these men because these men are simply monsters. A few months ago, I received the following email from Travis, and I wanted to share it with you all. Hey friend, I'm sitting here in class, spacing out, and it seems to be a good time to write. I wanted to tell you that I am super into your podcast, and it has helped me survive my dreadful commute lately, although I listen to it whenever, not just when I'm in prison in my vehicle. I really like the use of what seems like more little jingles and sound bites as well. It is clear that you do your due diligence on your topics, thank you, and enjoy discussing them. I can't wait to keep listening and see where this all goes. I'm not sure if you are going a different direction this season, but I have an old cold case I wanted to lob your way with the intention of possibly shouting it out at the end of the episode as you've done before. I was a senior in high school in 2005, working my first job at Quiznos Subs in the north end of Tacoma when I first met Beverly Hill. Beverly and I worked together and became quick acquaintances. Our friendship never really took off more than that, but we had a few things in common and it never hurts to be friendly with those with whom you work with. After some time, we both quit Quiznos and moved on to other things. I was saddened to hear that Beverly was unfortunately killed in a fire that was later discovered to be caused in her apartment and deemed suspicious. Her dog Zeus also died in the fire. To this day, there are no promising leads or tips. If there's a way you could incorporate that into some content, it would be greatly appreciated. Travis, I am more than willing to do that for you. Beverly Ann Stewart Hill and her dog Zeus were murdered in an apartment fire in University Place, Washington on June 24, 2006. Investigators deemed the cause of the fire was suspicious and could not determine Beverly's cause of death. Since 2006, investigators have treated the fire as suspicious because they found evidence that, that led detectives to believe the fire was staged. Beverly did not have a criminal record and detectives believe she was killed by someone she knew. Beverly's mom, Nellie, is still seeking answers 
and wants to know who killed her daughter and why. Y'all, most of you listening are from the Washington area. I know many of you shop and live in the University Place area and know people who live and work there as well. Beverly was a sweet and outgoing young woman who was just starting out in life and deserves justice. If any of you have any information on Beverly's murder, no matter how inconsequential you think it is or know someone who might have information, please call Crime Stoppers of Tacoma, Pierce County at 1-800-222-TIPS. If you feel uncomfortable going to the police, you can reach out to me directly at the history behind the crime at gmail.com or on Instagram at the history behind the crime. I will forward your tip to law enforcement. Someone out there knows something. You may not, but you may know people in Pierce County, Washington who do. Share Beverly's story with them. Travis, thank you for bringing Beverly's story to our attention, and I am so sorry for your loss. I am hoping that more public attention can bring Nellie some answers. If any of you out there know of a cold case you think needs more public attention, please let me know and I will do my best to get it on the podcast. So that does it for this episode. I hope y'all are staying warm during this cold snap. Even Maggie and Amelia are are foregoing their walks for a quick squat before running back into the house. I have taken advantage of all those socks and blankets and true crime sweatshirts I received during Christmas. You know, shout out to Shannon uh, and her boys and my brother as well for the excellent wine and beer. My family and friends know me so well. I'm already neck deep in research for the next episode. Um, Because of current events, it's going to be a bit controversial. But I don't think that's ever stopped us on this podcast before. Until then, you guys, you know what I'm going to ask. Do me a big favor. Take care of yourselves. And take care of each other. Bye. Bye.